Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, and today's episode is a continuation of season five, where we have shifted into more of a Bible study type of approach that is looking at this relationship between the Christian and the state, or the Christian and culture, the Christian and society. But mainly, the focus, at least here at the beginning, is the Christian and the state. So this first half of season five, or portion of season five is going to be focused on Old Testament examples that could be looked at to possibly shed some light on this relationship, on God's view of government and things of that nature. And so that's where we are. Then as I shift out of the Old Testament and covering these more broad sections and stories, then we'll go into some more specific commentary starting in Matthew and working on from there more of a verse-by-verse type of study. So the first episode in this series was on the story of Adam and Eve and their fall and their rebellion and that kind of thing. The next one was on Noahide law that occurred after the flood, where God, uh, the main part is God saying that when a human being's blood is shed, then by another human shall his blood be shed as well. And so it's that blood for blood principle. A lot of people go to that for the foundation of government or capital punishment, things like that. So I covered that. And that was last time. And now this time is focused on Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. It's a section that doesn't have a whole lot of elaboration in scripture itself, but the same would be Uh, Very true of Noahide law as well. It's just a few verses as far as God telling him uh, how things are going to be post-flood. And it's the same here with Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. So I'm going to start off with reading some uh, scripture, a section of scripture, and then some commentary from Josephus, and then some more commentary by Kiel and Delitz. If I have no clue how to pronounce deletes, by the way, it's D-E-L-I-T-Z-S-C-H. Lots of consonants there at the end. So let's start off with the section of scripture that's in question here. This will be Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 12. Cush fathered Nimrod, who was the first powerful ruler on earth. He was a mighty hunter before Adonai. This is why people say, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Adonai. His kingdom began with Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. Asher went out from that land and built Nineveh, the city of Reshavat Kalak, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalak. That one is the great city. Now, I do apologize, getting back to my own words here, that I uh, don't know how to pronounce most of these things. I read mainly from the complete Jewish Bible, and they don't translate a lot of the things like names, city names, people's names, things like that, which I like in general, but it does make it a little hard to read. So apologize for that. But you should get Babel and Nineveh. Those are pretty well-known names right there. So moving on, the first quote I want to read is from Josephus. He, He writes, Nimrod, the founder and leader, appealed to them that it was too humiliating and degrading for wise human beings capable of forming governments of their own to submit to the government of another. For when they flourished with a numerous youth, 
God admonished them again to send out colonies, but they, imagining the prosperity they enjoyed was not derived from the favor of God, but supposing that their own power was the proper cause of the plentiful condition they were in, did not obey him. Now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God, he also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from their fear of God, but to bring them into a constant dependence upon his power. That's from Josephus, Antiquities 1.111, pages 113 to 114. Now, the next section is from uh, the other one I can't really pronounce very well, Kiel and Delitzt, and uh, this was written in 1975 from page 165. Quote, Nimrod was mighty in hunting, and that in opposition to Yahweh, not before Yahweh in the sense of according to the will and purpose of Yahweh, still less, in a simply superlative sense. The name itself, Nimrod, from Murad, is, quote, we will revolt, points to some violent resistance to God. Nimrod, as a mighty hunter, founded a powerful kingdom, and the founding of this kingdom is shown by the verb with consecutive to have been the consequence or result of his strength in hunting, so that hunting was intimately connected with the establishing of the kingdom. Hence, if the expression, a mighty hunter, relates primarily to hunting in the literal sense, we must add to the literal meaning the figurative signification of a hunter of men, a trapper of men by stratagem and force. Nimrod the hunter became a tyrant and a powerful hunter of men. So I will give this disclaimer that these quotes that I read, these last two are not scripture, they are not canon, and so take it for what it is. It's like quoting the book of Enoch. I believe it does give you a good picture of what the early Hebrews believed, as well as uh, potentially and very likely these are things that were passed down for generations and generations and hundreds or thousands of years. And so while it might not be to the quality of being exact and 100% accurate, I think that typically good sources like the Book of Enoch is the example I'm using, um, do and are able to shed light on some aspects of the actual scripture and the actual Bible. And so I do know that Josephus has um, that there are different opinions on Josephus out there, pro and con, and uh, this other one is looking at the um, the name Nimrod and what that means and where that comes from and its significance in relation to the context of where it's put in Scripture, and so it's just it's a lot more extra stuff that's not directly in Scripture. So I do admit that, and that's just part of it. When you dig into Scripture, you do seek other sources. So with that disclaimer out of the way, uh, let's just look at the fact that the name Nimrod does mean rebel or an equivalent concept. Nimrod, in his actions of becoming the first powerful ruler on earth, as Scripture says, was in direct rebellion of God, in the same vein as Adam and Eve. He was creating his own law, ruling over other men and directing their actions, taking over this role from God. Although he was spreading his kingdom, it seems he was still concentrating and establishing his own power and rule by building up large cities within close proximity of each other, not helping humanity spread over the earth under the rule of God. 
which is what God told them to do, to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. He was getting people to uh, maybe be fruitful and multiply, but in a way that didn't fill the earth and glorify God and take care of his creation, but rather in a way that created the most prosperity, the most pleasure, creating the largest cities and the most powerful centers, these kinds of things. That, that is a different thing that he was doing. The cities Nimrod founded and ruled that get elaborated on later in the Bible the most are Babel and Nineveh. Neither are shown as being good examples of godly societies. They just aren't. You have very, very bad reports on both Babel and Nineveh. We do have a lot of historical um, evidence about some of the atrocities committed through Nineveh and how cruel they were, and uh, the same is true of Babel as well. So uh, it does not appear by any stretch that uh, Nimrod was someone following God or that his ideas of founding these cities were positive godly ideas or that these cities were godly cities. This just doesn't appear to be the case. And uh, this is the first example we have in the Bible of a king of someone being a ruler of men. And the fact that this ruler of men is establishing these cities that are later basically said to be against God uh, should be a sign for us that we should pay attention to. And uh, the aspect of Nimrod, the name, uh, being associated with a hunter. And um, the that last quote I read talking about how the name Nimrod comes from Marad, which is, uh, I guess, the translation of that is we will revolt. So we have this, this aspect of revolution and hunting and violence in these kinds of things. And possibly, although I would not go so far as to say definitely, the mighty hunter characteristic here could be that he was a hunter of men, whether figuratively or literally. Um, Or it could just be that he was a mighty hunter in the sense of hunting animals. He was just a very skilled warrior, skilled with weapons, these kinds of things, a strong man. Uh, That could be what it's signifying. But either way, he is someone that uh, is associated with violence, with rebellion, with building up cities and ruling over people in ways that are not in line with God's direct words and commandments as for what humanity is supposed to do. So I, I want to read another section of scripture that specifically talks about the story of Babel. And remember, this is the city that uh, Nimrod established. And that is that is actually scripture, that Nimrod established Babel. And it is the first kingdom. It says in Genesis 10, verse 10, his kingdom began with Babel. And uh, so with this being his first kingdom, probably the main one. Uh, Historically, it does seem to be a power center in the ancient world. And so looking at Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, it says, The whole earth used the same language, the same words. It came about that as they traveled from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and lived there. They said to one another, Come, let's make bricks and bake them in the fire. So they had bricks for building stone and clay for mortar. Then they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that has its top reaching into heaven so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over the earth. Adonai came came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. Adonai said, Look, the people are united. They all have a single language and see what they're starting to do. 
At this rate, nothing they set out to accomplish will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so that they won't understand each other's speech. So from there, Adonai scattered them all over the earth and they stopped building the city. For this reason, it is called Babel or confusion, because there Adonai confused the language of the whole earth, and from there Adonai scattered them all over the earth. So uh, I guess there's a lot to pull out here. Uh, One thing I will say is that uh, from the perspective of Uh, the divine council perspective, or um, this idea of there being a council of gods that Adonai is the most high god of, and these would be the Elohim. Um, It could be that that's what is referring, being referred to in the plural of, come, let's go down and confuse their language. Or it could be the way it is traditionally taught in most circles, that that is talking about some aspect of the Trinity, that God is one, but uh, God also has these multiple aspects of himself. And so it could be either one, just kind of interesting, especially since I mentioned the book of Enoch, it's in my head. But Babel is the first elaborated example we are given in the Bible of an organized group of people settling in a specific territory which, of course, is directly in contradiction of God's commands. This either is or is in the same principle of the first human government. And again, you could look at Nimrod being the first king, setting the first governments. You could look at what Josephus says. He directly says that that is the case. Um, In Scripture, it is just alluded to that he is a ruler, that he founded this city. It was the first of his kingdom. So it really sounds very much like he set up a government. That's what he was doing. And uh, it is the first time in Scripture that we see that uh, being mentioned and elaborated on. So, in the same spirit as Adam and Eve, the people wanted to control their own destiny. They wanted to make their own decisions. They wanted to live by their own wisdom. God's command to spread out and fill the earth was not very appealing to them. They could build up more power, renown, and status by coordinating under their own human governance and satisfying their own base desires. God even confirms that the united people could accomplish anything they set out to do if he did not interfere. This is directly what God says. This is not the role of man. Man was to multiply and spread, ruling over the earth, not over other humans, and everything in it, not to gather together, ruling over themselves and building their own reputation. That It's, it's in direct contradiction with uh, God's how he established the role of humankind. Man is to build up the name of God, not themselves. They are to rule the non-sentient creation, not other humans. And so it does seem like this is a pretty clear, uh, I guess, damnation of the idea of a king in government, which makes a lot of sense because later we'll get to Israel directly asking for a king, and he has not very many good things to say about that either. And so, since God does not change, it would just make sense that he would have the same opinion back then, and probably has the same opinion now. And so, uh, looking at this, we do have this example of the first king, the first ruler, the first government being Nimrod. We have the example of his main, his first city, and it seems as though that was the center of his kingdom, that was the base of his power, and we have uh, this 
description from God that uh, basically people are rebelling against me. Um, They have this thing that they say where they wanted to build a tower that has its top reaching up into heaven. And uh, it, it does give the reason so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over the earth, um, which is part of it. But there's also this imagery of uh, this being post-flood. So last time men rebelled against God, God flooded the earth and covered the entire wor- earth with, fire, with water. Sorry, um, And so uh, if they are wanting to rebel against God again, which they directly are by saying, uh, let's stay here and build up our power and reputation and forces and not spread all over the earth, specifically so that we will not be scattered all over the earth is what they say. So if they are directly rebelling from God, they know it, they directly say it, then, well, if they built a tower high enough, how in the world could God flood them out then? They would even be above God's punishment and above his condemnation. And they would reach all the way up into heaven. The idea is that they will be like gods. And again, this allusion back to Adam and Eve of you will be like God, knowing the knowledge of good and evil. They will, will be like God, these people of, of Nimrod's kingdom and of Babel. They will be like God. They will be above his reproach. They will make their own rules. They will make their own laws. They will make their own re- uh, reality. They'll make their own morality. They'll be able to do whatever it is that they set out to do. And as God points out, what they're setting out to do is not a good thing. What they're setting out to do is rebel against God. And so God is saying that they will succeed in doing so if I don't do anything. And so he chooses to act, and he chooses to intercede in this situation. And so this is something that is very similar to things that are going on in today's world with today's culture. This is the big push for the Church of Woke and for lots of other cultural movements going on. It's that man's law and man's rulership is what we should seek after. And I guess Church of Woke, I should uh, add some nuance there uh, that human law and human rulership is what they seek uh, because they're very gender uh, touchy. And so uh, with this, let's go with the Church of Woke example. We can go with the left, we'll go with the right, we'll go with both. So with the Church of Woke example, um, these people and this movement is all about creating their own reality and their own morality. And this is way beyond just the Church of Woke. This goes into transhumanism. This goes into the push towards the virtual world. This goes into the dystopian sci-fi pictures that we get. And I've done podcast episodes on all these things. So feel free to go back and listen if you're new as of season five. But the point is that what is trying to be done is to create a new morality, that we choose what is right, we choose what is wrong. We avoid the consequences of our immoral actions as defined by God, and instead we control what consequences we suffer. So think of something like abortion, for example. If you make a choice to join in union with someone of the opposite sex and a pregnancy results, well, that's the natural way things work. But instead of being burdened with that consequence of your actions, let's just get rid of it so that we no longer have to suffer these consequences. It's let's build a tower so we can't be flooded out, even though we are directly rebelling against God. Now we can't do anything about it, and we're getting out of the consequences. That's the picture that is being painted with today's culture as well. And it's all about creating our own uh, 
it's like creating our own world. It's becoming our own gods. If you think of the idea of the metaverse and the virtual world and this digital reformation that we're in the middle of and coming out of, what's being done here is it's creating this world that humans control, not God. Or at least that is the perception that uh, people believe. So what what people think is that they are creating this virtual world where they write the code, and therefore they dictate the rules. They determine the laws of nature of this virtual world. And so instead of being subject to the laws that God has set forth with the natural order of the physical world we live in, well, by moving into a virtual world— they can then control all the rules. They can control the laws. They can control this new order. They can establish a a new world order, a new virtual order, and they can do that themselves as gods because they are the ones doing it. Now, they is vague, and it does apply to many different things that I am not going to get into. But the point is that this cultural movement and the shift that's going on it's it's that same pattern. It's the same symbolism of Adam and Eve of the Tower of Babel. That's what's happening. It's people joining together. Think about this. The World Wide Web connects people all around the world. It's this idea of the global village, as Marshall McLuhan talked about, where you have everybody around the world, this global set of people that are integrally connected, and they can share information, they can get information, they can hear stories, they can do work with people and collaborate, they can do all this stuff all around the world. The world is not this separate, isolated place with all these different things and different places and different sets of information that doesn't really overlap. No, now it is all connected. It's 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 like that village life where everybody knows everybody and word gets around fast, these kinds of things that you think of with a small town or a small village village. It's like that, but on a global scale. And uh, yeah, there's a lot more to get into there. But uh, the point is that that's the idea of Babel. That's the idea of Nimrod establishing his kingdom, establishing these great cities, all roughly in the same geographic area. And they say, at least in Babel, that one of the reasons for this is so that they are not scattered around the world, so that they can be connected, so that they can work together, so they can all join forces as one uh, human entity to achieve whatever it is they set out to achieve, to become their own gods. That's their goal. That's what they'll do. And they're going to unite together to do it. Yes, it's the same picture. It's the same it's the same symbolism as this new virtual world that is being created that is uh, definitely uh, taking prominence in our current world. Now, I I will roughly say that's kind of the left side of the movement, the political left, uh, the more liberal in the non-classical sense, the more progressive side. But on the right side, you have a similar issue going on and I personally wonder if it is just as dangerous, if not more. But what you have on the right is people, on one hand, on surface level, going back to traditional values and conservatism, which you would think, oh, that is biblical principle. That's a good thing. Uh, You could even go back to the founding fathers of America and say, oh, they based all of this on biblical principles. And that is loosely true. However, the issue is that they took God out of them, and that was the whole point. And that is the point of what's going on now in this, uh, what 
I would guess will end up being the reaction to this shift to the left and the Church of Woke kind of running culture for a set amount of time as that starts to wane down and burns itself out and we shift back to the right part of that reaction is going to be going back to these more traditional, more patriotic uh, concepts. And a lot of talk will probably be made of the Constitution, of the Founding Fathers, of having traditional values and, you know, the good old days, these kinds of things. The problem with that is that for the most part in these movements, although there is a large portion of the Christian church that is associated with these things and definitely leans this way, even so, these are very statist movements. Their answer is government. Their answer is the state. Their answer is not God. It's not who will provide all your needs. Oh, God will. No, it's who will provide all your needs. Oh, well, we're going to create this welfare system through the state, and they're going to do it. We're going to give them money through taxes, and they're going to you know, steal it from everybody else, and then they're going to divvy it out, and it's all going to be good, and we'll take care of the poor and do all these things. No, that's the role of the church. The church takes care of the poor. The church is the welfare system for society. Like it, It's just... It's an inversion. It's a perversion. And and that's the point. Uh, again, this is what Babel, this is what that picture is. It's taking what God says the role of humanity is and what his role is and inverting that, putting us in the position of God of ruling over other people. And instead of us going out and fulfilling what God tells us to do to fill the earth and to basically take care of his creation— Instead of doing that, we want to consolidate and consolidate power and control each other and do this all for the benefit of our own reputation and our own status. Think of social media and things like this, all about status and reputation. Again, that's directly, specifically what the people of Babel said they were trying to do. So yes, a lot of parallels here. Again, going back to the right, the answer typically always goes back to government. It's, oh, the founding fathers and, oh, the constitution, which is their, you know, sacred text for this statist religion. And they go to these principles that sound good, and they are truly linked with biblical principles. However, again, like I said, it takes away God. It's saying that, well, how can we have morality without having to have God? How do we have morality without religion? How do we have governance without God? Uh, separation of church and state. How do we do this? And they created, uh, uh, so far as most people would say, the best way of doing that in modern times. But even so, it is, again, a direct contradiction to how God said that we should treat each other, we should set up a society, how we should act and interact in this world and with each other and with him and what role he should play uh, to establish a human government to make our own laws and our own sense of morality and then to base that on anything but God or scripture is a contradiction of God and scripture because that's where morality comes from. You don't get morality outside of that. You can go back to the evolutionary argument that, oh, well, you know, humans figured out that it was mutually beneficial for them to work together and collaborate instead of fight. And so therefore, we have morality that sprouted out of the ether because people wanted to collaborate. And I'm not buying it at all, because it is just as beneficial for one tribe to just murder the other and take all their stuff, or one tribe to build up a large centralized army so that they won't get attacked and someone else won't take their stuff. And then and people in power want more power. And the, yeah, it's it's this cycle. And 
I would say that it is a very difficult argument to be made that morality sprang out of a more evolutionary uh, concept. Morality is something that has to have a foundation. That foundation is God. And so especially, obviously, when you're looking at biblical morality, biblical principle, that is all based on God. And to take that morality and those principles, extract them from God and Scripture, cut them off and say, oh, we as humanity are going to adopt these same principles, but we're going to do it on our terms. We're going to create our own government to handle this. We're going to create our own laws and rules to handle this. We are going to create our own way of running things apart from God. Again, that's a direct contradiction of God's role of ruling over man. And so I really find it hard to figure out how the church uh, writ large justifies this position because largely it's very statist and patriotic. And I get the reaction to things like the Church of Woke or progressivism or the alphabet community, the LGBTQ whatever plus. I, I understand that reaction of saying, oh, we need to go back to something better. Oh, we need to have traditional values, conservative values. I agree with that. And while they would give lip service to saying these things come from God, and they honestly believe that, yes, these come from God, these are biblical values, at the same time, they will also promote this separation of church and state. Uh, They will, uh, I guess, promote state, period, which, and I guess I will lay out over the course of the season, is anti-biblical and anti-God. So with that, it it's a very difficult thing because on one hand, you have this movement on the left, this progressivism, this liberalism, this transhumanism, that redefine transhumanism itself. It's a redefining what it means to be human. It's going beyond human, something different than human. It's evolving, uh, deliberately evolving the human race. It's eugenics, just on a more scientific scale. Um, so with all these movements, I totally understand the desire to go back to, uh, let's say, the founding fathers and those types of principles and, you know, the Constitution and the beginning of America and the glory days. I, I understand that, but it is not biblical. That's the problem. And so even though, again, the movements on the right and what I believe will be the reaction to the uh, shift to the left, I, I think that those I'll be careful here, Uh, that has the potential to be much better uh, objectively by biblical principle than the left. I don't think it'll end up that way, but I, I understand why people go that way. It just does not line up with scripture, and that's the problem. And so even though you could argue that it's practical, you could argue that well, not everybody believes in God, and so if we're going to apply these biblical principles in our modern secular society, we have to do it without directly citing God or Scripture. And I get all these practical arguments. They're just not biblical. And so that's the thing. You can come at me all day with all these practical aspects of why to support the state and why it is good for us to organize and consolidate consolidate together and build power and implement that on the society and come up with our laws and our morality that is based on biblical principles but does not cite the Bible or God and does not use that as a foundation, 
I just have a problem with that because I believe that Scripture has a problem with that. And God directly says he has a problem with that. So there's a lot of problems with that. And I guess I will just wrap it up here because that's all there is about Nimrod and Babel. It's it's a very small amount of Scripture, a handful of verses, but you can get that pattern out of it. And I apologize for repetition as we go through some of these stories. And as we get into the more commentary sections of the New Testament, there is a lot of repetition, but that's kind of the point. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is narrative. The Bible is pattern. The Bible is symbolism. The Bible is elaborating on what God's principles are and who God is and what our role is in 50 different ways, in 500, in 5,000 different ways, 50,000 different ways. That's what the Bible does. It does it through story and narrative. It does it through history. It does it through the lives of individual people. It does it through the work of the Spirit. It does it through miracles. It does it through uh, preaching and sermons. It does it through all of these different methods, but it's all saying the same thing because God is God and God doesn't change. And All of it is an elaboration of God and what he wants with us. And so there will be a lot of repetition and patterns that you will notice as we go through these certain scriptures. And that's one of the things that I do want to highlight. Because again, kind of like how, even though the the text about Nimrod and the Tower of Babel is small, there is just a little bit of it, you see so many Uh, parallels with the story of Adam and Eve. And we're going to see so many more parallels with this and some of the things that we'll cover in the next few weeks. And so that's one of the things that does give credence to, I'll just say my interpretation of these things, is that it is repeated over and over and over and over again. And the times when it seems to be contradicted Hopefully, I'm touching on every single one that seems like a contradiction of these principles. At least that's my goal. That's why I'm picking out these specific stories and sections is because a lot of people would say that it contradicts uh, my view and what I believe the biblical view is of government and of the state and of our role in society. And so we'll get there. But uh, this is one of the things that, again, uh, does provide some some credence, some uh, firmness to what I am saying and elaborating on here is that it's going to repeat itself over and over and over and over. And it's really hard to debate that or get away from that or hide from that or twist that when it comes up again and again and again and again. You can twist it for one, you can twist it maybe for two, but it gets really hard when you go to the 10th, the 12th time. And so that is something to uh, keep an eye on as we go through these things. I'll try to point out these patterns, this symbolism that repeats itself, these desires and drives that repeat themselves over and over and over again. And I will at times try to draw that uh, to a parallel with the modern world, with modern society, modern culture, what's going on in the world today, as far as this societal kind of cultural view of things, and tie that in with these patterns and symbolism. So with that, I will stop here. I'll be back in two weeks, since now this is a bi-weekly podcast for season five, and we will get into the next section that chronologically seems to be the next best place to go, and that would be the story of Joseph. Uh, Joseph is a very good one specifically because 
he had a role to play in the government. And so uh, that's something that some people would point out that, oh, well, here is a godly man, a godly example, something that the scripture uh, holds in high regard, a person the scripture holds in high regard. And he was a government official. And so doesn't that contradict my view and interpretation that the basically government as an entity is against God or rebellion of God. And it, you know, at first glance, it may seem like that. And so that is why it is a great one to dig into. I don't want to shy away from the best arguments. I, I want to try to find all of the best arguments and then dig into them and figure out uh, what the big deal is and where this contradiction truly is and what is being told in the story and what is not. So that's what we'll do in two weeks. We'll do the story of Joseph and go over an overview of that. So until next time, if you are interested in reaching out, you can reach out uh, through the email address, probably the easiest way, ourfoundations at protonmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at foundationspc. Lots of memes and fun things like that that go through there. And then there's the website that you can check out, ourfoundations.podbean.com. That's a good one. And then if you are inclined to financially support the podcast, then you can find it on Patreon as well as Subscribestar, and you can do so. And there's some perks for doing so if you so choose. So that is everything. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to all the supporters out there. I really appreciate it. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.